0: This boy and girl are going to be well-equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Hello, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity all done in person and all trailblazers in the breaking of all things normal. All right, y'all. I'm here with my friend Sarah Brito. We met in a very synchronous way. She She publishes Good Food 100 Restaurants and it's a food blog from my understanding, but I'm looking more to, to understand even more. Because how we met was pretty synchronous, and I'm going to see if I can explain it briefly. And then, Sarah, if you want to add anything to her or, or um, have any questions about it, please help, please help me out because it's a mind bender. I was basically about to go into one of my favorite restaurants in Boulder called Basta. and Before I did, I was in my car and I was testing the Breaking Normal app, where the question of the week was, tell us about one of your biggest synchronicities. And I was watching my brother's video response about how he was intending on going to Kenya to help build a well, and he was really doubting it. He was really, maybe because of the vaccinations, maybe it was like a pile of things. So he, before he walked into a grocery store, he was telling the story, he asked God to show him a sign if he should or should not go to Kenya. He walked in the grocery store and a guy runs up to him, a black man <laughs> in Georgia, and tells my brother God has big plans for him in Kenya. He like stopped my brother and told him that. Allegedly in this grocery store. And, the, and then inevitably my brother went to Kenya and built that well and it worked and it was an amazing story. Probably one of the most impactful times of his life life. And he's one of the most impactful people in my life. And I like so before I went to Boston, I was like, man, is that even fair to ask God for a sign? like I have I have uh, I don't know something there was some resistance to me about asking God for a sign. I'm not exactly sure where that was rooted. Um, but I decided to have the intention to go into the restaurant and see synchronicity. <laughs> So um, it just so happened, like, I think two days ago before that, I had posted a video on my Instagram about feeding Araya. I left meat on top of her head and let her wait until she was, like, shaking. And then I told her to go ahead. And the people had messaged me. that Like, they were offended. Like, that's so cruel. You shouldn't be doing that. So anyways, that's just, that's a porn side piece. Walk into Basta. <laughs> I sit there at the bar by myself, just like, oh, let's see what happens. And sure enough, the bartender and like the l- lady sitting a few seats away from me start talking about this dog that comes into Basta or into this restaurant and they leave meat on its head until the owner says, go, it gives it a go ahead and it will eat it. And then the, the lady at the bar starts like, that's so cruel, that's ridiculous. And so then I was like, oh my gosh, I've just been receiving these messages, like I gotta say something, I'm saying something about this. And I explained that like how, for my dog, being a pit bull and everything, that food aggression is one of the most important aspects to avoid, Um, so important. And so much so that that would be arguably one of the best things you could train a pit bull to do. I'm not sure what kind of dog this dog was. <laughs> And it turned into this conversation and we just start talking and I was telling them about how I had just posted a video about that. And then there's this kind of an older guy that looks like a hybrid of Joe, Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro walking around the bar, kind of hovering around me. I'm like, what the heck is this guy doing? And then finally we just like stop and like look at each other. And we're like, what? what's up? Do we, something going on? <laughs> something like that. And he was like, Um, I don't know. I don't know. He's like, you look like someone I know. And I was like, wow. Okay, cool. Um, he's like, what's your name? And I was like, Daniel Eisenman. And he's like, no, it's not. (laughs) That's what he tells me. He's like, no, it's not. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's my name. And he's like, like, I just, um, I've been mentoring a guy to take over my company. And his name is Daniel Eisenman. And I was like, stopped at my, right there. That was, I was just shooken, shooken to the core and then I think you walked into the restaurant. I think you, around this time, and Richard was like, oh, this is my friend Sarah. Let me introduce you to her. Because me and Richard started talking more and more after that synchronicity. And he found out I had a podcast. He's like, oh, you should interview her. You should interview her for your podcast. And here we are. About two months, no, maybe more like four five months. No, no, no. I'm bending time. Man. Eight months. So yeah, this might have been a whole, like he planted the seed, the whole nine month birthing period happened and here we are. And in between that time, I think it was around before the whole COVID thing went crazy. So around February, maybe or January, I went to the gym and I, I, I went in the sauna and I had, I did this 20 minute thing, right? Definitely listening, listening. And I thought, oh, oh my gosh, I need to message that guy Richard um, and follow up with him. So I got out of the sauna, and because I, um, I, had, I had messaged him before. So the download was to call him, to call him. And I had messaged him before, and I was like, I can't believe Richard hasn't messaged me back. I mean, how could he not? So I'm going to call him when I get out of the sauna, when I leave the gym. So I was about to do that. I was leaving the gym in the parking lot. And before I pulled out, um, a car almost hit me. Literally, like I'm pulling out and it almost hit me. And I was like, oh my God, I think that was Richard. <laughs> and I was like, there's Daniel, you gotta see if this is true. So, sure enough, we got stuck in traffic a little farther up. And I ran out of my car and just started banging on his window because there was a lot, some traffic moving and stuff. And it was him. And I was like, I just tried to call you. I mean, I was just about to call you. And I was like, is this your number? Because I had texted you. He's like, nope. And I was like, I was just gonna call you to see if you wanna get coffee. And he's like, you want to do it now? I was like, yeah. And I think you were at the coffee shop. Yes, I was. You were at the coffee shop. And there was a girl sitting next to us about, and she was reading a book called Dreams and Memories from Carl Jung. And I think Carl Jung is like maybe arguably the king of synchronicity. So that is the frequency of synchronicity of how you ended up here. That took about five minutes, but I trust that was worth it because I tell that story and I almost think I'm lying. What do you think about all that?
1: Well, it's helpful because you're bringing me back to the night that we met at Basta, And I think as soon as we met and you said something about synchronicity, I think I said to you, welcome to Boulder. Boulder is the town of synchronicities. I've experienced so much synchronicity since I moved here. Um, and that, that was the beginning, I think, of our conversation, so to speak.
0: And when did you move here? And, w- and what, yeah, like what moved you here, I'm Curious.
1: Well, synchronicity moved me here. Um, and I can honestly say it was probably one of the first times in my life um, where I was, like you were saying, how you practice listening in the sauna. It was one of the first times in my life where I was intentionally practicing listening. And I moved here in May 2008. And um, I, it started, I think, the process um, even unbeknownst to me, in January, um, I was on a yoga retreat in Ojai, California. And I think that was my first or maybe my second um, sweat lodge experience. And um, the, the Lakota Native American who was leading that was also leading a um, hawk uh, feather healing ceremony that you could sign up for separately. And I had gotten divorced uh, in at the end of 2006. So now we're talking really about like January 2008. And I just remember thinking like, I don't know what a hawk uh, feather ceremony is, um, but I feel like I need this. <laughs> um, and so he sat me down and told me a little bit about it. Um, and he just said, well, you know, it's usually used for healing. So what do you want to heal and something just rose up in me, and I said, I want to stop living my life from a place of fear and from a place of shoulds. And I want to live from a place of creativity and freedom, like true freedom, the opposite of fear. And he said, okay, well, this work, he described the ceremony, and then he did the ceremony, um, and then he warned me, though, that he said, "I things are going to start to shift in your life really quickly. So just know that what you're going through, he actually gave me this warning before I went through the hawk <laughs> ceremony. Uh, things are going to start to change really quickly. So, you know, stay awake, be open, be like attuned. Um, and I had never been to Colorado before. I didn't know anyone in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> And I um, was then on a yoga retreat, or sorry, um uh, in Mexico in February. actually, yes, on another yoga retreat. I you know, I don't go on yoga retreats every month, but I happen to be in two in two months in a row. And I remember sitting this was a yoga retreat where you were allowed to drink. Some yoga teachers are less strict than others. And I remember we had done yoga, and now it was happy hour, and we're sitting on the beach, and I had a margarita in my hand. And I was planning to go meet a friend in Denver, coming to Colorado for the first time for a little bit of a ski weekend on my way back to New York City, where I moved here from. And I said to my friends, if I meet a guy in Colorado, I'm gonna move to Colorado. And my friends just laughed uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm sort of known in my circle as a consummate New Yorker. I'm always wearing black or dark colors. I was even wearing like a black bikini on the beach. So they're like, you know, you in outside of New York City, we just don't see it. Um, And, but you know, the, the thing is you have to be specific, I think when you ask God for a sign. And I said, if I met a guy in Colorado, I was gonna move. In my mind, I meant romantic, but what ended up happening was I met the CEO of the company And by the end of my ski weekend, I left Colorado with a job offer. So I went back to New York and I reported to my friends, hey, I met a guy in Colorado, I'm moving to Colorado. And they were like, oh my God, she fell in love with someone skiing. How is that possible? She was only there for three days. Um, But I ended up meeting the founder of my former company, not what I do now. Um, And it was the first time that I made a decision that felt like it was based on synchronicity. When I met that CEO, I remember thinking of the hawk ceremony and saying, he said things are gonna start to happen fast, things are gonna happen in an unusual way, a way that someone who used to make a lot of decisions based on fear and shoulds wouldn't have historically been open to. And so when I got back on the plane to New York with a job offer in my hand, It was the first time that I had made a decision, I think, in my adult life, based entirely on synchronicity and intuition, and did not make a pro-con list. I did not analyze the decision, and I just simply packed up my apartment in New York, and four weeks later, um, I was living in Boulder, Colorado, and I came here thinking it was gonna be a two-year experiment, and I'm sitting here 12 years later. With lots of more synchronistic stories (laughs) uh, to share.
0: I bet. I bet. Because I I think that synchronicity gets more synchronicity. Like when someone takes action on synchronicity, that's where it can really unlock.
1: It's like metabolism. It's (laughs) like if you rev up your synchronicity, it just, you just, I wish I could do that to my metabolism because I feel like I, I have been doing it to my synchronistic, you know, kind of, if you want to call it like energy field, um, vibes. Yeah.
0: Well, to keep the string of synchronicities going, because the project that I'm working on is, and it's also maybe my first time going into the food or supplement and or supplement industry. And, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday that definitely is like a mentor slash like a medicine woman of, I don't even really, I'm not even going to try to explain to you how I even know her. But she was definitely telling me about how she keeps finding red, uh, red tail hawk feathers where in her property and where she's at. And that was yesterday and I was sitting right there. So I find that quite fascinating what was this 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 was this a chief of sorts or who is, or a shaman or from the lakota lakota and um do you know his name yeah by I, I
1: wish I, I we used to be connected on facebook and um i mean i could probably find him because be i know who he, did, who he used to date um but yeah he was and, he was amazing
0: and you would know oh Ohio, which is definitely a yes. vortex of sorts yes i mean i and i think boulder as well do you think that do you have a belief around how certain land types of, or certain environments are definitely more ripe for synchronicity?
1: I I do, and I know that there is something with like you know one of the longitude or latitudes of Boulder. There, I think it's actually right along Baseline Road. They say I, I um, doubt it, but I also think that people have their own. Um, so for some reason, Boulder has worked for me in that way. But another place that's really like that for me. Um, is Point Reyes Station in West Marin um, on the Point Reyes National Seashore. And I think for me, I'm water is really important. I grew up on the Canadian border um, along the Niagara River, and then I lived in New York City, always near water. So it surprised me that Boulder was this magical place for me because it's so landlocked. So I think people can have their own places where they something just vibes for them? Yeah.
0: Were you in Buffalo or uh,
1: outside of Buffalo, 30 okay. minutes north, Lewiston, New York, Okay. near cool. Art Park?
0: I've been um, <laughs> in the Niagara River, river there at the border. above the
1: falls or below the falls?
0: I believe below. Okay. And it was kind of a weird yeah. bushwhacking to get there in a sort of sorts. Interesting. And I remember what I remember about that. A snake was in the water. Oh, no. The gnarliest looking snake. I couldn't, I was just like. But I was, there's I,
1: also eels. <laughs> there's eels in that water.
0: There's eels.
1: Like river eels.
0: Holy mackerel. Yeah. Can you imagine if that was eels? Because whatever it I saw, it, been an it shook eel. me. What the heck? There's Are those river eels at all dangerous?
1: I don't know. But one time as a teenager, I got in a fight with my boyfriend and he got mad at me. So he, to escape, he just decided to dive in the water. Um, and right after he, his feet hit the water, I saw one of those things slither by him and I'm like, get out of the water.
0: (laughs) So I'm like,
1: there's a snake. And then he's like, it's not a snake. It's an eel. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Whoa.
0: That is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, because I, I was just, it's so breathtakingly beautiful. Like, most people are there um, just to be with them. I'm like, when I see water like that, because I also resonate with water. Dude. I'm a
1: water like, sign, so I think, like, water signs and water.
0: Well, yeah, I, water is, ex- I was just having a discussion with my roommate, and he was talking about, he's like, yeah, I don't get it. Like, you go to the river, you unpack your stuff, and then you pack your stuff and you leave. And I'm like, What? i'm like what that's your experience of to me this is life in a way and like i I spent five minutes swim intentionally five minutes in a row swimming upstream clear creek and then i had to take a few breaks so i got tired and i was like there is no way i can there's there's just nothing comparable to that experience of swimming in that water like against the stream with my eyes open 50 something degree water wow i'm I, to me, it's like one of the, my most lit experiences of life. Hmm. And it was funny. When I was there at Niagara, I was just like, man, no one's in this water. And I could see it's like pretty dangerous upstream. Yes. But so I went intentionally to find this downstream spot. And it was calm and beautiful. But when I saw that thing in the water and now, now I'm starting to wonder.
1: Well, now <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to go. What we used to do is intertube um, in, from my town. And seven miles down the river is the mouth to Lake Ontario. And our families knew roughly how long it would take us to inner tube down. And then they would send someone out in a boat to get us before we ended up in, the, in Lake Ontario. Um, and this is like a normal thing that we grew up doing, just hanging with our butts in the inner tube. But now I'm going to be very reluctant to have my like, butt hanging <laughs> in an inner tube ever again yeah, after your snake story.
0: I might look into this a little bit more. The, well, I what I do remember about that spot that I was in, there was these cigarette speed – or not these speedboats. Yeah, the speedboats. And they would, they would go all the way upstream and yes. then, until they couldn't of The jet boat, yeah. Yeah, what the, I was right in that area.
1: Yeah, that's my town. Was there a restaurant h- kind of hanging over called The Silo? Like it looked like um, a restaurant hanging over like a fishing dock.
0: Mm, maybe. I'm not okay. sure. How is that restaurant?
1: Uh, well, my friend owns it, so I can only say good things about it. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> so when uh, I went to high school. It sounds with. like
0: yeah. a great view. It sounds like a great. Uh, is that true? Yeah, like, can it's, you it's see more the river like a snack there? bar. Yeah, it's okay. like got
1: a wraparound terrace. It's beautiful to watch the sunset. It's called the Silo.
0: That for anyone area, listening. <laughs> that area is amazing.
1: It's really. I mean, I mean, like for the waterfalls, for granted. the
0: water there is. I'm just saying, remove everything and yeah. just look at that water hitting those the land the way it does. It is profound.
1: Yes, especially I got to tell you, even though it's brutally cold. But because we live there, we, want, we don't want to go there when all the tourists are there. So the middle of winter, the dead of winter, like February, um, it is absolutely gorgeous to take a walk around Goat Island, um, which sits in the middle between the two falls, the American Falls and the Canadian Falls. And then you can really experience it, like here we are in Colorado, you can experience it as wilderness and as nature, whereas so much of the year, you forget that Niagara Falls is like nature and you know wilderness
0: very wild. Yeah. And that's why I think no one's in the water or 0.01% that I saw. Yes. Um
1: yeah, there's a lot of fear around and the rightfully water. so
0: <laughs> for that river definitely. That's this, who is that the American side? This goat island? What, uh, it's world? kind of in the middle. You don't have to, but, you don't have to it, go through
1: immigration. You don't? No, you For just. For
0: either Canadians or Americans? or.
1: Uh, I think access to it is only from the American side. Okay,
0: so then I, I want to do that. Yeah, sounds you should like,
1: absolutely uh, do I, it.
0: I don't think I did that.
1: Yeah, and you can walk around the whole island, you know?
0: That sounds awesome. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I, I do, like, that makes so much sense to me back to the synchronicity of how you made it a practice and then it showed up more yes
1: and i didn't know what was really going on then but now um i mean just to fast forward and then we can go wherever you want to go but um you were saying about that listening in the sauna um and i actually say a little what do you call like a it's it's like a prayer or like an invocation um i say an invocation every morning sometimes i say it before i get out of bed sometimes i'll say it after shavasana and yoga and I, it's kind of like pieced together. I got it from a coach once, but then I made it my own. And it basically invites God. And I think it's the only, because for a long time, I'm a recovering Catholic. So for a long time, I rejected religion and the idea of God or like bowing to the patriarchy. Like it was very hard for me to like bring the word God back into my life in just a spiritual way. Um, But I basically thank God for showing me the way, whatever that is, every morning. And then I ask him to give me the faith to be an open and receptive vessel for him to reveal his message through my life. So I'm basically every morning asking for the faith to stay open and to stay listening um and to be awake to whatever message he might be sending um and that has exponentially gone crazy during like the first half of quarantine because obviously you know i'm sing i i was single i should say i but i still live alone and i had a lot of time to like you know listen and call in uh in the first three months of uh COVID and quarantine.
0: Well, let me tell you a little synchronicity based (laughs) on that before, right before I pressed record, I remember like, Oh, I had this moment. I was like, Oh, I meant to say a prayer or an intention. And I believe I'm praying everything I'm saying. I'm praying. I do believe that. But I was like, and when I did that, I was like, Oh, it was just like a faith. I'm like an act of faith. I'm like, yeah, this is the intention. And then now you're telling me about this intention or invocation or mantra or prayer that you Mm -hmm. say, on a daily basis, which I deeply resonate with. Are you, are you cool with sharing what it is? Or is it like a sure. thing you just say to yourself or is it? No, I'm is happy is to it, share. I mean, please, I kind of huh?
1: just paraphrase, but um, like I said, a coach originally gave this to me because I was, it, I'll, I'll tell you, it was born out of trying to make someone who was not an appropriate boyfriend, you know, like force the situation. And my coach basically was like, you, there are no signs. There's no, there's no synchronicity. That there's no nothing flowing, and you have to stop trying to force things. Because I'm very, you know, I'm a recovering Catholic, I'm a recovering New Yorker, I'm a recovering type A, goal-oriented person, and so that's what it was born out of, and then I made it my own. And so I basically say, and what I've added during COVID is this notion of thank you for giving me life, Um, because you wake up in the morning, and we all have that moment where we realize, oh, I'm I'm awake, I'm alive, I got another day. So I say, thank you for giving me life. Thank you for showing me the way. Please uh, continue to give me good health and please continue to give me the faith to be an open and receptive vessel for you to reveal your message through my life and my work.
0: I'm happy I asked, thank you. Yeah, I'm in this like season in my life where I'm aiming to adapt rituals that can be implemented gracefully on a daily basis that I know add so much value to my life that I would like categorize them as a non-negotiable. And one of those for me is um, 50, uh, my breath work, I definitely, <laughs> yeah, I, the breath work ritual, but it's, it's usually combined with um, five minutes in the river, which I kind of alluded to earlier, but five minutes straight. And I like I would prescribe that if any. And if you can't get a river five minutes in your cold shower or if you want to take it a step farther, five minutes in a freezer that you buy and you convert to a cold tub. There is a when there's a will. There's a way. And I think that and it's interesting, I am not uh, I would not suggest it as much to women like I, I don't have the I, I feel it more dogmatic to suggest it towards like young men. And older men, like men, they all got to expose yourselves to five minutes of cold water a day if you can. And for some women, some women as well. And like, when I hear your intention, it sounds like you have made that non-negotiable of sorts. Like that's your daily intention. Yeah. And that's how you start your day.
1: Yeah. It's how I start my day. And what you said about sort of like, um, gracefully or something, it's like, you know, I, I could say that and you don't even have to know, you know what I mean? Like, so Uh, for instance, I I did recently start dating someone. And so it's not like anybody has to know. It's like you wake up in the morning, you could say it while you're on the toilet. (laughs) You know, it's like nobody, it doesn't have to be this big thing. Like I have to have my green juice and I have to, I have to tell everyone that I'm making my green juice or that I'm having it. It's like, no, I just go to the bathroom and look in the mirror or close my eyes on the toilet and say my little intention. And then I got my little dose of medicine for the day and nobody else has to know.
0: I think that's a big deal, uh, especially if it's done on a daily. Yeah. Like I feel like that really stacks. My friend, I had one of my earlier interviews, Hal Elrod, he wrote The Miracle Morning and he has like a whole acronym for his rituals that he starts his day with. But I think most people that listen to this at this point probably really understand the power of how one starts their day. Yes. And then there's people like Jim Quick who I've met who's like, he's preaching just just don't turn your phone on for the first hour. And I think when someone does that, then they might allow themselves more creativity to come up with a mantra or a prayer or a breathwork ritual or whatever it is that supercharges you for that day.
1: Yes. I mean, I have other morning rituals, but like there are times when you're traveling um, or you're not at home that you can't do those things. Um, But when I moved into my new apartment in Boulder, uh, which was very intentional of me, um, I... Uh, moved to California last uh, year for about six to eight weeks. And then when I came back, I decided that I was going to approach life from November 1st on in Boulder differently um, than the way I had in uh, in the past. I mean, coffee shop rituals are great in the morning too. But when I lived downtown, I am, I was social first thing in the morning. I woke up, I threw on clothes, I threw on a, a jacket, and I walked to a coffee shop. And then all of a sudden, you're involved in chit-chat. And I, I realized that I was just giving away my energy before I had actually centered myself. And so when I moved into my new apartment, I decided that I was going to give up the coffee shop ritual. That, that I would miss those people. I love those people. There's nothing wrong with chit-chatting with my morning crew. But I needed to do that later in the day. Um, so there are more rituals there. And I, I'm a big ritual person. And I, I read something actually during COVID. I was doing some research for something work-related about how rituals are really stress reducing um, and calming. And I've always been very ritual oriented. Uh, some people in my life make fun of it. You know, my dad um, might not call it such a nice word as a ritual for some of the things that I do. You know, like the fact that I was at BASTA on the Friday night that we met. I'm pretty much at BASTA pre COVID every Friday night if I'm in town. Um, everyone in my life knows that if I'm in town and it's Friday night, you know, Sarah's going to be like at Basta. Um, But I thought about like the traumas that I've had in my life, starting with the fact um, that I was adopted. And so I was um, abandoned at birth. And that rituals for me, I didn't necessarily always feel at home in my family growing up. We lived in a small house where there were a lot of just like lack of clear personal space. So just a lot of communal, um, I think there's a psychological word for it when sort of like a family has to have like one psychology versus like um, individual. And so I think rituals have been a way that I have tried to, and I'll use maybe like a negative word in in the sort of like the self-help arena, but like the way I've tried to control my environment um, but over time, so it started as a place of control for me, but over time, I think it's um, it's not that type A kind of gripping, grasping control. I think it's one of the reasons why I was really content, and I know I'm speaking from a place of privilege on many levels, you know, white skin, uh, a job that I can do via a laptop remotely from home, but the rituals of the first part of quarantine and COVID, I, I felt like I was on a personal retreat for 90 days um, because of my ability to create rituals um, and therefore find like a sense of peace and balance, um, and emotional well-being. Um, that to some point, you know, I was also getting a little bit of criticism. You know, like on social media, people were like. Why does it look like you're living your best life during quarantine? I'm like, I kind of feel like I am. And you kind of feel like a little guilty um, about it. But I feel like it's been very important for my own sense of well-being um, over the years and my own healing process um, of you know uh, some major things that happened in my life, the two biggest things being adopted and losing my mother to suicide when I was 28 years old, my adoptive mother. Um, so we all have to find those ways to cope. Um, and my whole goal after losing my mother to suicide and getting divorced at 36, was I don't want to just survive, I really wanna thrive. Um, and I credit rituals um, as one of the ways that I have been able to thrive.
0: Wow, I'm happy I asked. Again, thank you. These are like, that brings up a lot. Um, the, 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 it's all so relevant. It's all so relevant. I have someone very close in my life right now that I guess their dad, they're very young. They're very young. They're like, but their dad's going to be adopted. Like, he's adopting the daughter. The daughter. And um, also, another friend of mine recently lost her brother to suicide. Like these are two, like, kind of ongoing conversations in my life, so quite relevant you bring both of those up, and I bet, yeah, healing from those experiences taught you a lot.
1: It's also why, why I'm in food, because I think that, you know, food is life, and in the absence of mother, food was the way that I comforted myself. Um... And in you know, um, in everything that I do about food, because I'm about good food, and my organization focuses on good food, which it, we view as being good for every link in the food chain. So it's a holistic look at food, trying to expand the conversation beyond just taste uh, in the restaurant world. Um and so really the work that I do is very um mother earth focused. And so, you know, when I'm in when I'm hanging out with chefs in the restaurant world, I can't really talk about, you know, being adopted and suicide and mother earth, you know, cuz that's not the way the conversations flow in that world, but that is the underlying drive in me, which is that when I was abandoned by my mother, plucked from my mother, and you know what I view as the white baby adoption industry—you could call it the adoption industrial complex for healthy white babies—it's um, about being disconnected. And everything that we're doing with food in our overall industrial complex is—it's a disconnected system. And my whole life orientation and motivation is to reconnect those links. Um, and if I can't do it, like re- in re- reality, like physically, you know, I can't necessarily make a distributor buy from a particular farmer. I at least, I think I'm at least trying to do it con- consciously, make people conscious of um, how every link in the food chain is connected, and that. You know, if you think you're just grabbing a quick drink that's convenient, or a quick bite to eat that's convenient, um, or eating something that you think is so called healthy, but when you don't think about the implications to every other link in the food chain, you are participating in and implicitly part of perpetuating a system um, that is a disconnected system.
0: Yeah, I would like to know. I mean, I, meant, I would like to know so much so about both of those, the adoption and the restaurant business or the food business and the and the adoption business of what you're referring to. That might be some of the biggest issues or kinks in the hose. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, I think I, I, I love good restaurants. I love good restaurants, but i rarely eat at them because I think the oils they use suck. And that was, like, my main – one of my main issues with restaurants is that, they're like, I, I think a lot – they're doing so many things well, but then I find out they're, like, using canola oil or some sort of other rancid oil. And then, like, yeah, I'm going to probably get acid reflux from this meal, so I'm probably not going to eat it, even though everything else y'all are doing seems pretty cool. So I'm curious, are there any, like, major red flag issues in both of these industries or these experience, these situations with the, that you see most commonly?
1: It's so interesting I your question because um, th- what I'm about to say, I often talk about when it comes to food, but you just made me see how it connects to the adoption industry. I'm so curious about and that. And also um, on my way up to drive to meet you, I, I was listening to NPR on the radio, and they were talking about the in, uh, issues around mental health and insurance and the fact that ins- health insurance doesn't treat mental health the same way, and there's a law that's trying to be passed in California to make sure that insurance companies don't discriminate, um, that they should treat mental health issues the same as they might would cancer. But anyways, what came to mind when you asked, that, asked me that question is the issue of transparency. I think one of the, the things that um, is a part of, and I'll, I'll generalize, and we can I'll, I'll just throw it out there and be provocative, that sort of permeates American culture. And I say American culture because that I'm American, and I grew up here, and I see it everywhere here, but it may not be unique to American culture, and I may be overly generalizing. But what I have noticed uh, when I started searching for my birth mother and talking openly about adoption, and when I started to be public about my mother's suicide, I come from a very public um, family. My father's an elected uh, official in upstate New York uh and i think about the lack of transparency around mental health and then to food there's a lack of transparency in the entire food chain and to me the lack of transparency relates to um a difficulty in dealing with the truth um and we won't even talk about politics in terms of you know alternate truths and facts and things like that but i think I'm a big believer that the truth sets us free and that when I woke up and realized that being adopted was an issue for me um, and I started to face that, then the healing started. When I refused to whisper that my mother died of suicide, um, even though I was from this public family, I, it, it helped me. Um, and I think that the lack of transparency in the food system only helps those who currently hold the power. And the people who currently hold the power, the status quo, are the big industrial food companies. And so the lack of transparency does not favor what's actually good for people. I'm sorry, transparency, uh, the lack of transparency only favors the big companies. And what would favor everyone would be truth and transparency. But for some reason, I think culturally, we have, a, we have a problem with the truth. And those of us in whatever sector we're working in that want to bring up the truths of the sectors, we often get called elitist. Um, and what I like to say when it comes to food, because my father's one of those people who makes fun of me. I mean, he likes to make fun and say that I'm a food snob. And my response to him or anyone else who says that my values around food are snobby or elitist is caring is not elitist. Caring about anything in life, caring about babies, caring about mental health, caring about humans, caring about farmers, caring about the land, caring about restaurant workers, caring about fair wage, caring about um, the correlation between poverty among farmers and poverty among food service workers and the correlation to suicide and the fact that the suicide rate uh, among farmers is significantly higher than the general American population. It relates to poverty. Um, And I guess I'm just one of those people that likes to put the truth, the elephant, um in the room on the table and let's just say you know i guess i'm quoting maybe um someone from saturday night live or barbara streisand talk amongst yourselves (laughs) you know like um but i just wanna let's just face the truth um
0: well so if my eyes were a camera like the lens my lens which is a really cool concept i'm not sure if you've ever played with this But, like, if I focus on you, the book Breaking Normal in the background is blurry. It's blurry. Um, But if I focus on the Breaking Normal book, you're blurry. (laughs) I think that's pretty cool. And I look at that book, and it's a guy that's in the self-imposed prison with the key at the tip of his nose. And the subtitle being Rewild Your Inner Child and Set the Truth Free. That image was originally created from my friend Raj Lahodi, uh, who used to be the CEO of DMV.org, who's been a guest in the past, epic guy? Um, he created that image and it did say, uh, The truth will set you free. That's what it said. <laughs> <It's> breaking normal. I had to do that. And more like, synchronicity. Because <laughs> I didn't know that. So, and then actually, when I really, when I've gotten to like the most honest conversations with people and they kind of try to dissect my um, dharma of sorts. It's like I, I've I'll, I've thought so much about the Breaking Normal logo or what it, what it represents. I've thought about Dumbo, um, the elephant. And there's something about like I typically what, – what I mean by normal is there's an elephant in the room that everyone is ignoring for some weird reason. And I'm – my highest path is just confront like, hey, I'm going to show you all this elephant and uh, I'm going to – Trust, I'm going to create, co-create a heart sync environment over a group think environment. Like we can disagree, we can not see eye to eye on this, but we can still team up. And I think that's why people like transparency just brings up the, when someone's truly transparent, especially like what you're talking about, which I am so interested in that conversation, it's going to bring up a lot of questions and confrontation potentially. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are scared shitless of that. They'll do anything to not have a confrontation because yeah, they can't handle themselves one, one reason.
1: Right, be, and maybe. even if that confrontation is with themselves. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because I just looked at the image on your book and you know, there's a lot of reasons that maybe my family put bars around me or things like that, but what I get from the cover of that book is like the, the breaking normal for me was to break out of my own cage You know, and of course that was created culturally and societally and familially, but ultimately I'm an adult and that's what I realized is, you know, at a certain point you have to stop blaming your parents and the fact that I was adopted and all this other stuff and say, how am I going to break myself free? Um, And so what I find, because, you know, you and I haven't known each other for very long, is I'm not really good at small talk (laughs) and what people who meet me often i think sense is oh shit i'm not going to be able to hide from her because i have no interest in having small talk and most people don't want to even if you it, it's not like i can't have a casual drink on a friday night but most people sense like i have an intense i a lot of people have told me i have intense eye contact and i'm like well it's because i'm present like I. But most people don't want to be present to themselves in their own life. And so when someone is present with them, it freaks them out.
0: Yeah, I, we have a lot in common.
1: Are you a Scorpio?
0: Uh, I was born June 1st, so I think that oh, puts me in the yeah. Gemini. Oh,
1: yeah. No wonder you have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gemini. It's like the sign of the communicator.
0: Yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I communicate like, with talking to you right now and connecting with you right now. That's kind of how I feel because... I understand what you're saying and I understand what other people are saying and I almost understand the disconnect. And I guess that's what I'm aiming to communicate about. That's what I'm aiming to talk about. The adoption, um, who was it? Several, several people. This adoption thing is a big conversation too that I I believe that I have not addressed. What about the, the transparency? Like you're having a challenging time finding your
1: No, I actually, I've been reunited with my birth mother since, uh, so I'm 49, I'm about to be 50 at the end of October, um, big birthday, and uh, I reconnected with my birth mother when I was 29. So a year after I lost my adoptive mother to suicide, I reconnected with my birth mother. Um, But in New York State at the time... uh, Is there a book about
0: this? my
1: yeah. book yeah
0: is there is this book out oh, or no?
1: everyone is saying to me i have oh, okay. to write a book
0: <laughs> so it's not out yet okay. it's not
1: out yet i'm, and I'm just like have...
0: i'm trying to aim to understand it in this conversation because it's a lot i bet and I need... it's really amazing and intriguing and i'd probably like to learn more than i can probably learn from this conversation
1: well i need to figure out a way to tell the story that connects it to the f- to food um because to me it is about truth you know so I'll tell you the story of the adoption and then I'll relate it to like a something as simple as a tomato. I do believe that there is a true tomato and like a false tomato. Um and I think that me trying to find out who my real the way the language I would use as a child is I want to know who my real mother is. And it's not to say that my adoptive mother was not valid and a mother and mothered, um, but the real mother is like the woman whose body I came out of. You know, like, I mean, that's just how humans are born. I'm not, ma- I'm not making a judgment about it, you know, but what happens when you say that as a child is everyone around you says, well, no, your real mother is the one who raises you. Um, and that's true. Um, but I think what I learned at a very early age, which is a really profound lesson to, to just be born into a no, is that life is a duality and life is a paradox. And I seem to be able to grasp that at a very early age. I have two mothers. Why can't the rest of the world accept and give me like the, the validation that both of my mothers are valid? Because even as a young child, I seem to be able to accept this duality. Um, and so I think like, that is a big part of the lack of transparency is, you know, New York State has since changed the laws, but at the time uh, they were closed records. So I was never gonna be able to find out who my birth mother was unless she happened to join a registry and I happened to join a registry and they actually matched us. Um, and there's a lot of cases where both people are in the registry, but the system doesn't match them. So I hired a private investigator because one, I knew that um, at the time I had a really intense career in New York City, that I knew I, I was not going to be able to manage the emotional roller coaster of thinking I found a lead, you know, basically then hitting like a dead end, you know, having the crash, and then getting motivated to search again. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to outsource this. Um, and so I'm really lucky that. Um, the private investigator that I worked with only charged me upon success. Um, so there was no like running tab that was costing me a fortune. It was like when he found her, when he had a phone number, when he had an address, um, when he had valid information, then then I sent him a check. Um, and so I've been really lucky that I've had my mother uh, in my life for 20 years. And I can say that I also, because I'm a living experiment that it is nature and nurture, because there are things that are um, about me that I I know could only have come from my mother. Um, And there are things about my birth mother that absolutely annoy me. Sorry, Anne, if you're listening, Um, that I think to myself, oh my God, thank God she didn't raise me. Thank Thank God I got this from the family that I grew up in. And so my life is like this living mirror of its nature and nurture it's it's my adoptive mother and my birth mother but i don't like to call her my birth mother in general i mean for this conversation it just makes it clear as to who i'm referring to but it's not just the fact that like i came out of her vagina that you know made her my mother it's not just that like she birthed me it's you know for 28 years, I was once interviewed. I think I was actually interviewed on Fox News in New York way back. And they were, the, the uh, reporter was trying to ask me why it was so important for me to find my birth mother. And she was asking it like, as if it was like this big mystery. And I looked at her, and, I, and this ended up on the air, because someone uh, one of my relatives saw it. And I said, are you aware that mankind has been trying to go to space forever? because mankind is trying to figure out why we are on this earth. I'm simply trying to figure out, and then I use the word vagina on TV. I said, I'm just trying to figure out whose vagina I came out of. It seems a lot less complicated than figuring out why we're on planet earth. And I, I just like to show like the ridiculousness of the question of like, it's just human nature. We're, we're seeking answers, we're seeking meaning and when you don't know that, I used to sometimes feel like a Martian, you know. Um, and you don't feel like you know, you don't feel like you actually belong here. Um and you know, we all know psychologically um the impact of not having a sense of belonging to yourself um and to a group has on someone's self-worth. Um and so I used to find my reprieve was in nature because I'm like um, another thing that I found um, sort of solace in is this poem. I don't know if you've heard of it. I, I'm suspecting you have, um, called "Desiderata." Um, do you know that?
0: I'm not certain. I would, if you okay. know it, I would. oh no, it's super long, uh, okay. so people are okay. going to okay. have to Google it. I don't it, know if I know that, I don't but there's think a line
1: so. in it um, that I gravitate towards, and you know, in all my angsty adolescent years. Um, I would just recite that one line to try to remind myself that even though I feel like an alien in my family and I don't know like, who I belong, I don't even know my ethnicity, my ethnicity, these people are trying to raise me Catholic, you know, maybe I'm not Catholic. I used to hypothesize, like, maybe I'm related to Princess Di. I mean, my fantasy life, my fantasy life was out of control as a child. But um, this line is, um, we are all children of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars so just that line would help me ground me when i when my anxiety or depression was like you know making me feel like you know maybe i don't belong on this earth because i don't even know whose body i came out of um i would just recite that line and say okay i do belong here because we are all children of the universe even if i don't know my mother i am a child of the universe and i am no less than the trees and the stars um and I think it goes on to say something like and we all have a right to be here. Like we have a right to exist. Because one of the fundamental things that many uh, adopted children deal with is do I have like physically my body? Do I actually have a right um to exist?
0: Yeah, that's a big one. Have you seen the TV show Yellowstone? No. The faces that's one of the things that goes into about <laughs> Yeah, about finding out. Like uh, one of the actors. I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but it's how did you know that you were adopted? When did you find out that you were adopted? That's one I mean, question. I was, it
1: was so young that I don't actually remember. So they, it was
0: clear. It was, that was transparent. Tr-
1: that was transparent. Okay. Um And I there was like a special like children's book in our house, and I would always ask my parents to repeat it. Like, can you tell me again the story of how like mm. I was adopted? Mm. But like I was always asking for them to repeat it. Um, so they thought I was okay with it, um, but I was I was trying to figure out answers. Like you know, I, it was like I was born. I was literally born as a seeker, <laughs> because I was seeking the truth of my own life.
0: You have siblings from the parents. That yeah, you were I have adopt-
1: an adoptive sister,
0: and she was adopted as well. No, she was uh, their natural child, but oh. she
1: came she came after me.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, how many years? Uh,
1: three age years and four school years.
0: Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. There's lots to dissect with I Imagine a lot of that, man. I don't know where to begin or end. Holy mackerel!
1: I know when people like you have that reaction, <laughs> you're. Remi- I'm just like, yeah, that's my life. Like, you know what? It, it's like.
0: Well, what about the suicide? You know, my friend. Um, I'm thinking of my friend right now, where she's probably processing that. But their brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything to? Any brush well, strokes on that subject? <laughs> I mean, she's...
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because um, it's something that I... I mean, even though I, I'm i open to talking openly about it, it's not like I ever thought my work would have anything to do with mental health or suicide. But it's... I, I don't have anything, like, official to share right now, but I've sensed during COVID... Because I work with chefs in the restaurant industry, which has been completely decimated by COVID, um, and specifically the hourly workers that you know got laid off, um, and again they were already struggling with like low wages and poverty and the mental health issues that come along with that, and you know I don't want to get into because I'm not an expert, you know the chicken and the egg thing about whether or not people with addictive behaviors and personalities gravitate towards the restaurant industry, or whether the restaurant industry you know, creates you know, through alcohol and drug abuse. Um, but there's obviously that aspect to the restaurant industry and how it touches mental health. And so it's, I, I had always viewed my mother's suicide as just you know, something that happened to me personally. Um, one of the reasons why I feel very much like I prioritize my mental health and my self-care um, but I, it's just starting to come up about how it might start to enter closer into my work with good food, because if good food, as I say, and you know, kind of like um, evangelize, it has to be good for every link in the food chain, then the mental health of farmers and the mental health of restaurant workers is part of being good for those people, and I think that there's... Um, an opportunity to offer and create more support, um, you know, outside of the say traditional mental health system. You know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a social worker, but um, I got so much support from my adoption support group. Um, I actually wasn't ever in therapy while I was searching. I just went to a support group um, pretty much every Wednesday night in Manhattan. Um, and so it was fellow adoptees counseling and coaching each other with, with the supervision of you know, a facilitator who was trained. Um, and that was so comforting um, and because I'd never experienced therapy one-on-one or group prior to that so I just remember this feeling when I walked into the room one I don't think I'd ever cried in public before I mean besides my mother's funeral I was one of those people that like if I was at the movies and there was a sad scene and I had to cry that's when I went to the bathroom so that I could like cry in the bathroom stall and not even in front of my friends and I walked into that room and I, I was gonna be a listener the first time and I just started to hear how open and vulnerable everyone was in the circle, that by the time they got to me, I was just like sobbing to the point where I couldn't even talk. Um, And I walked out of there and I tried to describe the feeling to my dad and my friends. And I said, "I, I, I, I understand it. It's like being adopted is like being a cancer survivor. You walk into a room and there are cancer survivor, breast sur- breast cancer survivor support groups. There are all sorts of, um, there's like widows support groups for people who lose a spouse. And all of a sudden, I never had realized uh, that I was part of a group. I, you know, I just thought I was like a rugged individual that was like determined to be self-sufficient. And so I think it, it opened me up to the notion that being vulnerable is what makes us strong, that not being rigid because up until that point, um I like I said, you know, New Yorker, hard worker, goal oriented, it was like nothing is gonna break me. I mean, I think that that Frank Sinatra song, like if you can make it in New York, you know, you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It was like, that's basically was my theme song until I was 26. Um, and I was determined that, and actually I know it was because when my mom died, I hadn't thought about this, I bought, I splurged um, on a watch uh, called Tag Heuer. I don't know if they're still popular because no one wears watches anymore. Um, but I had always aspired to have that watch looking at uh, their magazine ads. But the reason I aspired to have that watch Was because their tagline back then was, don't crack under pressure. Like, that's who I was as an individual. That is very different than the woman sitting in front of you on a beanbag chair, you know, today. And so I would say the thing about suicide and one of the conversations um, that I remember having with my mom because we didn't know she was struggling. You know, the conversation around mental health in 1998, where we were from in our small town, is very different. So our family didn't know, you know, that she was struggling with anything. We just thought she was eccentric. She was a creative person. She used to have a TV show. She was an actress. So we just thought like, you know, that's she's an eccentric actress, creative type. We, you know, looking back, you see signs, you know, that she could have been bipolar. Um, She wasn't in a happy marriage. but the biggest thing I remember her saying to me once on the phone, but we didn't have that kind of relationship, so I, I couldn't really be there for her, was I was trying to explain to her how much comfort I was getting through my adoption support group. And I said, why don't you just... Because basically I didn't want to listen to her vent about her marriage problems. I was like, just do something about it. Like, go talk to someone. Like, go... Um, and she said, don't you ever feel like when you like go down the dark hole into the wound, like your adoption wound, that you're just never gonna get out. And I was like, no, I was like, you have to go into the wound. I mean, even me as a 27 year old, I remember having, I think I had this to her conversation with her the fall before she died in February of 1998. And I think I just remember saying to her, it's like cleaning out a sore. If you don't clean it out, the pus is just gonna fester. Um, And that was like one of the last deep conversations that I had, but you know, for a lot of complex reasons, I'm I'm sure I sound like a callous daughter um, to some of your listeners, but for a lot of reasons, I just, I was tired of mothering my mother and I was like living my own life in New York. And I was like, I don't know what your issues are with your marriage and I don't wanna know. I live eight hours away. You know, at least I took my adoption issues into my own hand and I went to go seek out help, you know, just go talk to someone. But my mother, I could tell from her questions and her response that she felt that if she went into the sadness that she was never going to get out. But the problem is she never did get out.
0: Whew, yeah. I mean, that, that it goes a lot. Like, I, I don't know if you've read Breaking Normal, but there's just so much resonance with like what you, re- the idea of like really expounding upon when someone really resists something, how it can persist. Mm-hmm. Like, that might be the best way to grow something is to give it, resi- you know, have resistance to it. And uh, not in all cases, I mean, it's not, this is all dynamic, but that is definitely a psychological concept that I see when someone tries to metaphorically put shit up, something uh, smelly under the rug or something they don't want to mm-hmm. look at under the rug, it tends to smell more. Yes. And then I also had a bust, I had a breaking number bust, what's most personal is most universal. And in the context of, yeah, our retreats, that the very first thing that we did, our retreats, um, and I, we'll see what happens the next one whenever that happens is usually uh, some sort of confession session. So addressing the elephant in their own room right away. So there's not worried about hiding it anymore. Mm-hmm. So like anything they think that could disconnect them from this group or anything they're embarrassed about or anything they were ashamed about, like you have 90 seconds right now to black out and share it. And it's a lot more context before that. Um, so I can res, I, I mean, I, I hear you, I see you thank- and thank you for not being afraid to address the elephant in the room and talk about these topics that are arguably so challenging to understand because how few people have been willing to be transparent about them. And then I think that you're part of that shift of where we'll heal that, we'll heal that as a collective as well.
1: Well, and that whole phrase, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that, there were times when I was going through the, my adoption work, you know, which I did from age 26 until I found my birth mother at 29, that of course there were emotions that were coming up that made me feel like I was going to die. You know, Oh my God, it's like I just, how I can't possibly do this. And I remember that um, facilitator who was uh, a social worker um, saying that it, n- your emotions can't kill you that you will nothing will come up that you can't handle um and that really stuck with me like it's like and i understand that there are people that if they do have something wrong with their brain maybe their emotions can kill them um but i think for we're so uncomfortable with grief in our culture we're so uncomfortable with Sadness, we, we don't even know how to use the, those words differently. Sadness, depression, grief. It's just all stuff that's like, oh, I don't know what's going on with that person. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that. Um, and when you start to think about it, if you're like overall a generally healthy person that's just going through a depressing time, to have someone say to you, you should be depressed because of what you've just gone through. Your like, I had to have people say to me, your mother just died of suicide. It is okay to be depressed. It is okay to be grieving. And to have that kind of affirmation and normalization um, of our emotions, um, while also, you know, seeking help, you know,
0: Yeah, I'm having flashbacks of my dad, I think I remember like talking to him at one point or the other about feeling depressed or something like that. Like or not feeling good or feeling sad. And I remember dad said, like, Yeah, yeah, everyone gets depressed. That's good. Just let it go. I mean, just like feel it, let it go. And, uh, and there's something that, like when you're speaking and everything I've experienced through all my retreats and how going into that, going into it rather than trying to avoid it. Um, yeah, that's a big deal, and I think that there's something – I think we're – I basically think we're, like, recovering. If you look at human history, we're recovering from a bit of an emotional dark age. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important with all the all, – everything that you brought up in this conversation, so thank you.
1: Oh, um, I, I love that way of thinking about it, like, waking up from an emotional dark age. Um Cause I totally agree, and there's all sorts of other things going on in the world that are also waking us up.
0: Yeah, and it's like and the the idea that it could be taboo for a restaurant to be transparent about where every ingredient or the whole chain is coming from. I do think it's a symptom of the whole, and I, I really... I know we're, we're approaching, we're about five minutes from the hour and 11 mark. Wow. It's hour, yeah. <laughs> so briefly, tell us about the Good Food 100 and what it's about and how people might be, uh, want to get involved or what, what they might get from it.
1: Sure. So, um, yes. Yeah, so this lack of transparency exists in restaurants. Um, and it's one of the reasons why you'll often see restaurants just um, name the sort of hero ingredient ingredient on the plate. So let's say, you um, have wild sockeye salmon from Alaska on the plate. That will often be named, um, but everything else related to that um, dish um, is is a mystery, and you just have to put your trust into that restaurant. And so, um, and the critics, you know, your local newspaper food critic, um, the Michelin Guide, the James Beard Awards most of the best of lists that exist in the world, whether we're talking about local, regional, national, international, they reward restaurants simply for taste. So if that wild Alaskan sockeye tastes good, that restaurant's gonna get a good rating or make a list or get a James Beard Awards. And so what we're trying to do is transparency is scary. You know, industries are like machines. And everyone in those industries kind of learns how to play by the rules of that machine. Um, And so if you're going to challenge that, you have to make it safe for restaurants uh, or any industry to do that. And so we created this survey where we ask restaurants to fill out, it's about 25 pages long, it's like doing your taxes, a really intense in-depth survey on all of their food purchasing and business practices. And we promise them confidentiality of their data um, in exchange for their participation in giving us this data and the survey. And then we aggregate that with all the other restaurants that participate, and we analyze that data, and we give them a rating. Um, And so because we keep their individual data um, confidential, and we have this rating, and we give them credit for being a a participant in it, we're trying to celebrate the restaurants um, who are willing to be transparent with their food purchasing and business practices, but to do it in a way that is still safe for them. Um, to, so in, this, in essence, our list and our rating system is a proxy for trust. So we, we're a nonprofit organization um, that adds to our trust. So you know, I'm not making money off of this. I'm not gonna sell this company to Google. We also partner with the University of Colorado um, here at CU Boulder, the business school. So they're the third party that um, independently analyzes all the data. And then we partner with another nonprofit that actually verifies the data that the chefs give us. So there's a lot of kind of redundancies to kind of like add to our credibility and integrity. But what we're basically trying to do is, is create a new model to change the way the restu- uh, the world views and values restaurants so that they're viewing and valuing them on more than just taste criteria. And we are trying to celebrate um, the people and businesses that are truly putting their money where their mouths are um, and trying to change the food system for good.
0: Wow, I have a, I, like when you were describing that, I had this like crazy imagery, and I think it's partly because like the recovering Catholic meme. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this crazy imagery that i'm not sure if you're gonna love or not but I, I, I almost heard it's like so like the restaurant goes into like the confession box and then the priest <laughs> gives a rating <laughs> and the, so the public can see it. Is yeah that, is that so I, because so it's was the questionnaire public like the or oh yeah
1: it's available the
0: questionnaire at, for the like for me yeah is you public, can go to our website and but, anybody can view it the specific responses from the restaurant are not public. They're but not public. The, but y'all's rating of their answers is public. Yes. Wow. And then, but they know that they're going to be public. Their ratings are going to be public when they do fill out the questionnaire.
1: Yes. Um, and, our, and our system is um, not the star system, which is used for typically used in restaurant ratings. We call it the link system. So they're rated on a score of two to six links. So um the if you have 6 links it means that you're doing you know the majority of things right versus your peers and if you have 2 links you're on the bottom half um but what we're trying to do with that rating system is celebrate participation it's you know it's it's going to kind of sound a little millennial like you know everybody gets a trophy um but we're trying to encourage people to simply be transparent with their data because As you can imagine, um, most independent restaurants, whether they're, sorry, independent businesses, whether they're restaurants or not, do not have to report any of their data to anyone. So we're trying to um, create a new behavior, which is completely foreign, which is giving this independent third-party nonprofit all of our confidential data. Yeah. In order to move the industry forward to a place where, because we believe that a more transparent system serves all and you know the hashtag that we use is good food for all not good food for chefs not just good food for the eaters not good food just for the environment but not for the farm workers we're trying to and it's an ideal you know we're never going to get there in one lifetime um, but we're trying to create a system that is really good for all so Good and what's the URL all. exactly on that? It's um, goodfood100restaurants.org. Goodfood100restaurants.org.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. We bre- we broke the normal and went past the time limit, um, <laughs> the creative constraint, which I'm fine with. You know, obviously breaking normal. <laughs> and thank you, thank you. Thank for you. you. You being you, you. I what I would say is like people that I love to hang around with are willing to transparently and accurately describe what's happening for them and it seems like you're doing that like a pro
1: i'm practicing <laughs> and doing it for
0: others in businesses in the restaurant industry and thank you for doing that so till next time Boulder restaurants on your your favorite Boulder restaurants.
1: Well, to get to give a plug, I don't know when this is going to air, but the 2020 Good Food 100 Restaurants list is going to come out this fall. Okay. Um so I will leave it to encourage people to go to the website and see which Boulder and Denver restaurants um were willing to be transparent.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about yeah. that as well because I know the restaurant we go to together is one of my favorites, so
1: and they are on—they are on the list. I will say that because they have been on uh, the list and participated from the from the very beginning. So awesome! I think uh, it's not—it's no surprise that we met at a Good Food 100 <laughs> restaurant, Basta here in Boulder.
0: Exactly. All right. Thank you. Keep breaking normally, y'all. To be continued.